This episode is brought to you by our incredible community of listener supporters on Patreon. Our Patreon offers listeners exclusive archival content, extended episodes, and access to community conversations diving deeper with past guests. Your monthly pledge ensures that For the Wild has the funding to keep producing informative, thoughtful, and rooted conversations and programming. All funding supports our small team of creatives, podcast production, and special For the Wild projects like our zines and slow study courses. To support us on Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash for the wild, or if you would rather make a one-time donation or recurring donation outside of Patreon, please visit for the wild.world slash donate. radical ideas relating to earth renewal. Today we are speaking with Layla Darwish. Layla is a community organizer, author, permaculture designer, educator, urban gardener, and grassroots herbalist with a deep commitment to environmental justice, decolonization, food sovereignty, and to providing accessible and transformative tools for communities dealing with toxic contamination of their land and drinking water. Over the last decade, she has worked as a grassroots bioremediation instructor for different environmental organizations and community groups in Alberta, BC, and the USA on campaigns such as tar sands, fracking, nuclear energy, coal, climate justice, water protection, and more. We will be discussing her book from New Society Publishers entitled Earth Repair, a grassroots guide to healing toxic and damaged landscapes. Layla, it is so great to have you with us. Welcome. Right on, right on. Well, we have connected. I would love if you could start us off by sharing a bit about how you came to your work in this field and how you discovered the power of grassroots bioremediation. Yeah, I guess for me, I had spent a few years working as a community organizer, um, mainly in Alberta. Canada, that's where I'm from. Um, and if folks don't know where that is, just think tar sands. That's <laughs> what Alberta is famous for, um, unfortunately. And so I'd been doing a bunch of work in Alberta and a lot of the communities I was working with in terms of doing environmental justice work were dealing with toxic contamination from poorly disposed um, uh, waste or oil spills and people were getting really, really sick. And when you work in places like that where you start to get close to people 
and you see what they're facing and you see them trying to live off the land but not being able to and, and the cancer and, and all the stuff that goes with it, it's pretty heartbreaking. And so as an activist, I was able to sound the alarm and, and help politically in some ways. But at the end of the day, we were always asking the government and asking the corporations who had made the mess to do something about it. And they didn't want to or they would turn a blind eye or basically tell people it wasn't happening. Right. Mm -hmm. And so at some point you're like, it's going to fall on communities, even though it's not necessarily the responsibility. Those are the folks who are living there and who are committed to those places and to future generations and who have the heart and the courage to do the work. And so I think I just really wanted to find a way to help people do that work as well as empower folks to heal the land that they're living on um, and step in and kind of you know, do what their governments and these companies will not do for them. Um, and then I think the other piece for me is, uh, beside all that stuff, I was learning permaculture and I also did a little bit of a, a stint where I was doing organic farming and gardening. And when you start growing food, you're, you know, and you're living in urban areas, you're always looking for places to grow your food and you're constantly running up against the land that's usually available is not always the cleanest land and might have heavy metals. It might have, you know, chemicals on it because of how we live. Our whole society is built on toxic materials and um, disposing of things in improper ways. And so how do you grow safe and healthy food? How do you gather safe and healthy medicine? Those are all coming up for me. And I was just trying to find a way to do the work. I'm so appreciative that your work goes beyond the nuts and bolts of earth repair and explores the roots of the destructive mentality that has landed us in this ecological predicament and the social repercussions of capitalism unloading its toxic legacy on marginalized communities. So would you mind elaborating on that chapter of your book where you take on environmental injustice and other legacies of colonialism? Aha. Uh -huh. Oh, so many ways you can go with that. Um, <laughs> hmm. One, I think, you know, when we're looking at healing contaminated and damaged landscapes, you know, I say this in the book, but there's a reason why those places got damaged and mm -hmm. why they have been destroyed. It's often the same reasons why the people who lived on those lands and who are living closest to those lands are also dealing with a constant oppression and assault and violence. Mm. And it's that same to me when I look at colonization, when I look at oppression, um, capitalism, all those things, those are things that destroy land, but they also destroy people. And they are the reasons why we see, you know, um, the siting of toxic projects and industries and waste dumps far more in, you know, indigenous communities, communities of color, low income communities. And if you're richer white community, that's something you're going to have to deal with a lot less. Mm -hmm. Although you still might have to deal with it. But at the end of the day, you know, where I come from, the government loves to put projects in the backyards of indigenous communities. In the States, you guys have a lot of that too, especially with communities of um, color. And um, I think it's just something we got to pay attention to because at the same time, a lot of those communities do not have access to the solutions. Right. When there is a spill, they don't get a quick response. They might not even get a response at all. So I think that's why, for me, we have to talk about it. Um, because, again, if we don't talk about some of those issues and we don't acknowledge some of those issues, whatever earth healing work we do is just going to be destroyed by the very thing that keeps kind of cycling that destruction. And that's systematic. And that's part of, you know, um, the attitude's that are destroying this planet. And that is colonialism and that is capitalism. And so that's why I think it's really important we talk about decolonization and we talk about, you know, how to 
not just, you know, come in there and clean up the land with mushrooms and plants, but how we keep the land from being destroyed in the first place and how we also support the people who've been defending and protecting that land far beyond, you know, people like me who are relative newcomers. So, mm. yeah, it's all important. And again, a lot of my work has been inspired by the folks on the front lines and watching them live their struggle and have the courage to fight back every day. Absolutely. I've also been deeply inspired by our friends who are defending the forests, grasslands, oceans, uh, rivers, and and I think any discussion on earth repair should begin with an honest analysis of our culture's patterns and parallel efforts to avoid further damages. So can you give us a little intro into bioremediation as a way to put the radical ideas into action? Right. Um, yeah, it's really important to define it. It's also important to say that industry uses the word bioremediation for some of the things that they do, and they're not always the best things. <laughs> I talk about grassroots bioremediation because I'm trying to differentiate from kind of industrial or corporate. Grassroots bioremediation is working with the plants, the mushrooms, uh, the bacteria that have been nature's response to disaster and working with these different allies to either break down different chemicals um, or to immobilize and extract heavy metals. Mm. They all have their different ways of doing it. In some situations, we work with mushrooms because they're really good at breaking down more complex and persistent chemicals. And then in other situations, it's really good to work with bacteria because they'll help immobilize heavy metals and keep them from going into the plants. Same thing with certain fungi in the soil. And then we always talk about plants, about how they can either suck up different heavy metals or some plants are really good at breaking down chemicals. And so depending on the contaminant they're working on, depending on the site, all of them work in different ways together to heal the land. And the beautiful thing about a lot of the bioremediation I talk about in my book is that whether you're dealing with a toxic situation or a piece of land that's been severely um, damaged or degraded, all of these things will help bring life back and help kind of regenerate the ecologies so that the land can start to heal itself. But just in the beginning, as human beings, we have to kind of get in there and maybe try to right some of the wrongs that have kind of happened on our watch and kind of allow for the land to get a bit of a head start at coming back together. We were standing in the garden and I had a machine that made silence. It just sucked up a whole opinionated in. And there were no people on the payroll. And there were no monkeys on our backs. And I said, baby, show me what you look like without skin.
You emphasize the grassroots aspect of earth repair, which keeps it local and allows communities to be the stewards of the land and to respond with carefully designed low impact techniques. So is there anything redeeming about large scale corporate or government orchestrated by remediation? Or does it generally just give the illusion that the problems are fixed? Yeah. I mean, it really depends on the type of contamination. And, you know, people always talk about this isn't bioremediation. This is conventional remediation. They talk about how like one of the most common ways uh, that contaminated sites are handled in terms of, let's say, a bunch of contaminated soil is dig and dump. You excavate all this contaminated soil, you haul it away to someone else's backyard, drop it there. Again, usually that backyard is in a marginalized community of some sort. And then you truck in clean soil. And I you can't see my quotation marks with my fingers. But <laughs> again, that's using a lot of resources that um, we don't live on a planet that has infinite space. You know, landfills are filling up. And we don't have infinitely clean soil to keep drawing on, right? And so the neat thing about bioremediation, grassroots bioremediation, is trying to find ways to clean up contamination in situ, on site, and, and not kind of externalizing so much of the problem. When governments do bioremediation, it really depends on who's doing it and how they're doing it. Sometimes they can probably do really good efforts with phytoremediation, which is working with plants. I haven't seen governments take on what we call mycoremediation, which is working with the mushrooms very well or effectively or at all. With working with the microorganisms like bacteria, you see more of that in industry. Um, And there are some examples with oil spills of folks trying to do kind of industrial bioremediation. Um, And again, sometimes they do it okay, And other times uh, it gets a bad name because, you know, they just come on a site and they spray a bunch of fertilizer and that works or it doesn't work or it causes other forms of contamination. Um, Or they'll talk about bioremediation and do something called land farming, which is where you take contaminated soil and you spread it out, kind of allow it to volatilize and like off gas or it'll seep into the groundwater and contaminate other places. And that's something, again, it's not, I don't know how often it's done, but all these industries there is that thing where people are just trying to hide the problem. They're trying to kind of get it off their plate and say, we did our cleanup job. We can keep going on and making more money. Yes. And the problem with any kind of conventional mediation is that it's about money. It's about the cheapest option and the quickest option, or it's about, you know, paying the people, you know, like business to business who you've always had a contract with and making money off the problem, some form of disaster capitalism. And it's not good for communities who are often trying to find a cheap, accessible way for us to do this. It doesn't involve... Lots of money spent, you know, moving contaminants on and off site doesn't involve weird chemicals. Yeah, that's actually cheap, accessible, you know, regular folks like you and I could do. And it might take longer and it might be, you know, something where we actually have to work with living beings. We can't just bomb them with chemicals. But in the end, it's something that we can do. And it's depending on resources that we have, not things that we're running out of in the world. A great example is BP dumping two million gallons of Corexit in the Gulf of Mexico to dispel the visible oil, when really it just created tiny oil droplets that coated the ocean floor and were ingested more easily by sea life. Now, in your experience, when you're not seeing the visible signs of contamination, are there indicators to alert you to toxicity in your soil or in your water? Right, because usually when there's an oil spill, you kind of know. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> there's something where it alerts the people. Mm-hmm. Um, Again, it really depends on what you're dealing with. Unfortunately, I have to keep saying it depends. But, you know, in a lot of communities where folks, you know, they want to grow gardens, they want to have food security, potentially heavy metals in the soil. 
And there aren't, I mean, some people talk about how some plants can be indicators for that. Um, but it's not, I wouldn't find that so helpful because um, they might be, but they also might not be, you know. Oftentimes, the indicator or why you'd be concerned about whether there's contamination in the soil is looking around and saying, what has been here before me? Mm. And so I think it's really important that people understand where contamination comes from. So, for example, you know, I lived in an older neighborhood and it was this, you know, really sweet hippie neighborhood and everybody gardened. And I wanted to grow a garden, um, kind of a gorilla garden somewhere. And people actually stopped me and said, you know, the place you're about to grow your garden has really high lead contamination. And I couldn't understand why. And then you start hearing about, you know, older neighborhoods with older houses. People used to use um, paint that had lead in it. Right. And then, you know, the lead paint chips off into the soil. And so any place where there's been old houses, you're going to have to worry about that. Or, you know, next to roads, we used to use leaded gasoline. Right. And we don't use it anymore, but these things stick around. Or, you know, you look at places where maybe they were spraying pesticides or chemicals, um, where people have been dumping things. If there's been any kind of fire that burnt waste or structures down, you're going to have everything from heavy metals to dioxin to PAHs. Um, if there's been incinerators in the community, that can definitely give mm. you a, a toxic load. And so oftentimes, you know, anywhere we are, given the world that we live in and how we don't build in a good way and we don't necessarily live in a good way um, when it comes to health and nature. And right. you just have to kind of look at what's around you and then say, what could there be in terms of contamination? Or you can do a soil test and find out really quickly. Mm-hmm. And that's the part with remediation. Bioremediation is very financially accessible, except when you start testing soil and then it starts to go up in price. But it's a really good thing to start off by doing because then you know what you're dealing with and then you know kind of whether you are actually cleaning it up or not. Besides testing, is there any other way to know if the effects of bioremediation are working or to what level they're working? Mm-hmm. I mean, testing is the best in terms of you know. Um, I mean, sometimes you can you're dealing with a really desiccated, really destroyed toxic place that is, you know, maybe so toxic that nothing could actually grow on it. That could be because of acidity or alkalinity, things like that. But, you know, if you're dealing with a site where, you know, you walk onto your site and you're like, nothing is here. That's also a good indication. If you have like a piece of land where there's stuff growing and then all of a sudden there's bare patches, Mm. it's like, well, I wonder what's going on there. You know, a lot of times with this work, we have to kind of tap into our intuition and our instinct. And, you know, you asked earlier about decolonization um, and bioremediation and, you know, there's kind of talking about the really political side of that, right? Um, with justice and injustice. And then there's also the piece where we need to come into a better connection with the land that we're working with and the allies that we're working with. And so how do you learn how to listen to the land and also listen to what the mushrooms and the plants and the, the microbes might be telling you and, and tune into that? And you can't completely go off the deep end with that and kind of go hippie on it where you just think you're communicating <laughs> with the land. Really, you're just not doing anything. Like you have to actually hone that skill and also temper it with practice and science. Mm-hmm. It's art and science and magic kind of woven together. You know, there is a certain thing of kind of looking around and seeing what's growing on the site. You know, if you bring things back, you're going to start to see a different community of organisms that are going to show themselves um, in terms of plants. And, and you know, the soil is going to look different. It might smell different uh, mm. in terms of more alive. Again, I would not say that by doing all those things, I would be able to say, now you can eat out of this and feel really good about that. Like, I'd be a little leery. If you don't have the money to test... You do your remediation, you know, you work with the different plants, the different mushrooms, you do that for a couple years um, because they often say with remediation, you know, two to five years 
if you're dealing with kind of low to moderate and if you're dealing with things that are, you know, pretty difficult to clean up or a bunch of different contaminants, it goes up in years. Mm -hmm. But, you know, give it a couple of years and a couple of seasons of your remediation. And then if you don't have time to test or you can't test, I would build soil up on the site and do like sheet mulching or raised beds and plant, you know, my food crops into that just to be safe. Right. Mm-hmm. Because you you've done that work of actually like giving back to the land and saying, hey, I'm a human. I'm responsible. I'm going to take some ownership here and and do that healing work because I'm feeding this to my kids. I'm going to also grow up <laughs> so you can do that. Another thing I've heard people do, um, and this is an idea that comes from the Amazon Micro Renewal Project, which is a really great project down in Ecuador. They do something called plant bioassays, which is basically where they take plants and they grow them in soils of different contamination. And they kind of look and see how the plants look at kind of the different contamination levels. Oh, wow. And then that can give you a bit of a qualitative thing to be like, okay, at this level of contamination, you know, nothing grows. At this level, it grows, but really poorly, or it takes this long. And then at this level, it's starting to look a bit better. But again, not a for sure thing. And if people's lives and health is at stake, I would say do a bit of fundraising and get that test. We hear this term baseline a lot. The polluters claim there's a safe dose of contamination. So do you attempt to reduce contaminants to baseline, meaning what's, quote, normal? Or is there another standard that you strive for? Mm. Yeah, good question. The thing with what governments deem a safe level of contaminants um, you can go online or you can look this up and find that, okay, in America, the safe level of lead is this much parts per million. And in Canada, the safe level of arsenic is this much. And so when you're doing your remediation and you're testing, mm-hmm. the interesting thing about that is, well, several things. One, they're talking about a safe level of one contaminant, but they don't talk about what happens when certain things combine. So if you have multiple contaminants in the soil, how is that going to impact your body? So that's one issue. The other issue is that they're incredibly political they're political numbers. So, for example, the safe level of lead in Canada is much less than that in America. Wow. Like, I think ours is 100 parts per million, 70 to 140 parts per million, depending on whether it's a park or kind of agricultural use. And I think for you guys, it's 400. Oh, my gosh. I, I think. I hope I'm not getting this wrong, but I always talk about this when I'm teaching in Canada, and we, we kind of make fun of it because we're like, why is it so high in the States? It's not because they're bigger people than us. Like, that doesn't make sense. And it's because of potentially the lobby, you know, like different polluters lobbying, um, or there already being a certain level of pollution in the cities that, you know, they have to basically say this is what's safe. Otherwise, the government would be liable in so many ways. Like you look at Japan with the radiation and yes. the safe level of radiation just keeps going yes. up because that's the new, it's like, that is your base. Like, it's like, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. And so that's a huge issue. And we live in a world that there is a lot of toxicity. You know, it's, it's sometimes it's very, people can get kind of worked up about it because if you go through all the different things that are out there, people start to get freaked out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we have to realize that this is the world we live in, that our bodies can handle it to a certain extent. Um, and the land can handle it to a certain extent, but we always have to be finding ways to kind of clear that and to help detox that um, and to give ourselves more of a capacity. So, yeah, I don't quite know what to say to that, but it, it is important. And and often, you know, even with remediation, when we're working with the plants and the bacteria and the mushrooms, you know, we're either trying to uh, immobilize or bind the contamination mm-hmm. so that it can't really move into water or move into food that we're eating. So kind of locking it into the soil um, by combining it with biology or just making it less mobile. 
or we're trying to extract it and actually take it out of the soil via a plant or via a mushroom. Mm. And whenever we do those things, there's just different trade-offs. But, you know, one thing I talk about is, you know, if you're dealing with contamination in the soil, just because it's in the soil doesn't mean it's going to make it into your plants. Depends on what uh, metal, let's say, you're working with. But there's certain things you can do to kind of lock it at the roots or, or in the soil itself. And the plant that you end up eating might be a lot safer. Or people talk about something called fate of transport. And that's where... Different plants will accumulate different heavy metals in different parts of the plant. People use sunflowers to accumulate certain heavy metals, and they worry then about birds eating the sunflower seeds and then poisoning themselves. But what's interesting is it won't make it up to the seeds. Lead is a pretty clunky, really hard to kind of move metal, and it doesn't travel up to the seeds. So the seeds of a sunflower grown in lead-contaminated soil are not going to have that much contamination. But if you're dealing with cadmium in it as well, the cadmium will make it all the way to the seeds. And so there's a whole, there's a lot of studies on this. There needs to be a lot more, but folks looking at what plants accumulate what where. And I think when it comes to food justice and people having to grow food, not having years and years to kind of clean up the soil, it's important to know some of those things. I thought it gave me gasoline. I don't know what gave me gasoline. I thought. go back to Fukushima and nuclear fallout, I'm glad you mentioned Japan's shifting baseline because there's so much confusion about this topic and the media blackout prevents any real information from reaching the outside world. I know you're also on the West Coast and I'm wondering where is the fallout ending up and does bioremediation offer us any solutions? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that also motivated me to write this book on remediation was things like big environmental disasters, like oil spills, like nuclear accidents. But also the funny thing is in doing so, it's kind of saying, okay, we must have, we have these massive environmental disasters. How can we as regular people deal with them? When it comes to bioremediation, you know, there are some things we can do, but these things are massive. They're yeah. massive and they're, they're a big deal. Like I'm, I'm trying not to swear. I'm like, they, they are a really big deal. <laughs> I don't want to be selling false hope and I don't want to be saying to people that this is like, you know, it'll fix everything. Because, you know, when I was learning permaculture and people were saying, you know, mushrooms are going to save the world and heal the world, it's more nuanced than that. I think it's important that people know that so that we actually are willing to do the work um, and also understand that I think at some point in the game, plants, mushrooms and bacteria can definitely do a lot of healing work. Right now, 
there's a bit of a gap. You know, there's a lot of people talking about it. There's studies happening in the labs and there's not enough things happening on the ground and not enough kind of in communities, people learning it and testing it and experimenting and pushing it farther. And I think in doing that, we'll actually manage to start having some of the real conversations about, you know, dealing with some of these bigger issues. Mm -hmm. But I think when it comes to nuclear, um, it's really hard because there's so much we don't know about what's going on with Fukushima right. and in what ways mm -hmm. contamination is reaching us. Mm -hmm. And I know in Canada, there's a, like we are not getting that information at all. Um, right. And so who do you believe? And you don't exactly. want to make people afraid, but you also want to make people cautious and, and give people the opportunity to take care of themselves. When it comes to staying healthy in, in kind of the face of that, in the book, I have a whole chapter on how to support your body in terms of toxicity, just because if you're doing the work of remediation, you sometimes end up being around, you know, a lot of contamination. Or if you're just living again in this world, you are dealing with some of the stuff anyway. And so we talk a little bit about how to handle radiation. Um, and I mean, what a lot of people say is when you're around radiation, you know, you're worried about in the end getting cancer. Um, you're also worried about how it impacts subsequent generations, right? Mm -hmm. So there are certain things like uh, medicinal mushrooms that are really, really helpful for the body in terms of preventing cancer. And that's a huge thing. If you've been exposed to any contamination, you know, like in an oil spill or again, with things like radiation, especially, you want to be on it when it comes to uh, watching out for cancer and trying to do your best to kind of prevent that in the body. And, you know, mushrooms like reishi, shiitake, maitake um, are really good. And so, you know, we talk about that a little bit. We talk about things like miso being really, really helpful. Other things in the body like turmeric, garlic, also very helpful. Spirulina, something that they were experimenting with after Chernobyl and found some interesting results. There's quite a lot of information on all these things. Seaweed is another one that people talk about to um, getting radiation out of your body. The problem with seaweed is that it also accumulates radiation. So if you're trying to eat seaweed from a place where there might be radiation in the water, that's not going to help you at all. Um, but I don't know if that answers your question. In terms of the actual remediation, people talk about, you know, with um, radiation, we have found that certain mushrooms, Paul Stamets talks about this, how certain mushrooms are good at pulling up things like cesium and strontium. So are certain plants. Like uh, post-Chernobyl, they were um, experimenting with a kind of transgenic sunflower that was really good at pulling up certain radioactive uh, contamination. And then they were also finding a certain form of fungi that was actually growing in Chernobyl and kind of using the radiation as food. So there's some neat things there. And also post-Chernobyl, people were finding, you know, that you couldn't eat the mushrooms in the area of fallout because mushrooms hyperaccumulate radiation. And so all these things you can kind of use to get radiation out of the environment. The problem with nuclear, and it's always been the problem with nuclear, is that we as human beings have no idea what to do with radioactive contamination once we have it. So we can concentrate it and try to move it somewhere, but where are we going to put it? We don't have any safe way to dispose of it. So it's not the best. We don't have a lot of solutions to that, to be honest. It definitely makes a case for the anti-nuclear movement. And we should be honest that we live in a toxic period. There are two million unique chemicals used in industry. But, you know, that doesn't mean we're helpless. In fact, we have a responsibility to fight this poisoning of our Mother Earth. Yeah, do because what the we world can. does not need us to be debilitated right now. The world needs us to be acting. Yes. So it's like you have to fight that. And I mean, there are, again, some places are more toxic than others. Some places are not that toxic. It really depends on kind of the land and its own ability to kind of cleanse and also what's happened in those places. But I definitely think what you said 
is really important. It's a case that I make in the book and in life in general is that the best medicine is preventative medicine. When it comes to trying to clean up things like oil spill and nuclear, there is some potential, especially, you know, with oil, like we can find different ways using mushrooms and bacteria to break it down, but it is really hard to do it, especially at a huge scale. And so if you're trying to kind of help the land and like support communities, you want to make sure these spills don't happen. Mm -hmm. Which means that we have to, you know, in terms of activism and organizing, we have to oppose some of these projects that are trying to go forward, whether it's the big pipelines from the tar sands, whether it's fracking, all these industries, they push forward these projects and they say they know how to clean them up, but they don't. Right. (laughs) And we watch things like BP, you know, say like, oh, sorry, we still don't know how to get the oil. And Mm -hmm. in Canada, it's a similar thing where there's no spills going on and the companies are running around looking like they have no idea what to do because... You know, they got their plans approved, basically saying this, I'm going to clean it up and it wasn't tested or it doesn't go as planned. And so we have to make sure that these things don't go ahead, that we don't get more nuclear than we already have going on, that we don't allow some of these pipelines to go through because with pipelines, with tankers, it's not a matter of if there's going to be a spill, it's when. And you can count on the fact that your government and the companies will probably not do a really good job cleaning it up. Mm -hmm. Oil spills are really close to my heart because I'm from Alberta and You know, you start reading about the statistics and a company, if they're doing a good job, they might be able to recover, you know, 15 to 20 percent of the oil spilled. Wow. And that's like, yes, we did it, you know, and the rest is going to kind of be left in the environment to break down over time, which it might, because again, we always have to remember the earth can do some of this work itself. But if the earth has been severely impacted and, you know, a lot of the beings like the, the indigenous bacteria aren't used to the oil or they were killed in the initial toxicity, it's not going to clean itself up very fast. Um, look at things like the Exxon Valdez. It's just one of those things where we, we need to prevent some of these things from happening. You know, and we need to make sure that the ones that are already going on, because there are pipelines, there is oil moving around all the time. There are nuclear projects currently operating. We need to make sure that, you know, they have the pressure on them to be monitored and getting upgraded in terms of safety. Because again, when spills happen and accidents happen, it's hard to clean them up, whether you're doing conventional or bioremediation. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm a big proponent of the activism. We're here with Layla Darwish, author of Earth Repair, and we're talking about reversing the damages wrought by civilization. And we've already touched on fungi as a tool for remediation, but let's go a bit more in depth. You know, people are awakening to the miracles of the fungal kingdom, in part due to the radical mycology movement. 
I know you've been involved with that. So can you tell us about the amazing work being done by radical mycologists and their fungal allies? Mushrooms are, oh, mushrooms are amazing. Um, <laughs> I just get excited talking about it. It's one of, it's the funny thing about mushrooms is whenever I teach about remediation, the majority of the people in the room are excited to talk about mushrooms. <laughs> Sometimes I make them wait and I talk about bacteria and plants first. I want to make them stay for the whole thing. But mushrooms have this ability, I don't know if it's their mystery or the fact that, um, yeah, they have this beautiful mystical history um, and ways that they act with human beings. And yeah, I'm not quite sure what, what the, the hook is, but when it comes to remediation, you look at some of the, the pollutants, like the chemicals that are really hard to break down. Um, and mushrooms have shown an ability to kind of do that work and do it quicker sometimes than the plants and the bacteria. And oftentimes when we're talking about remediation, you know, we'll take something like certain really long chains of hydrocarbons and use mushrooms to kind of break them into smaller bits so that the bacteria and the plants can then come in and do their work. And also its ability to kind of tackle some of these problems that folks don't have solutions for. And the neat thing about it is it's not just problems in the land, it's also problems in our own body. So things like cancer, arthritis, inflammation, Alzheimer's and dementia, you know, they're starting to see like certain mushrooms have pretty powerful abilities to heal these issues that, you know, we're not finding a lot of solutions for in other, other things. And so I think that's why I think mushrooms really captivate people. I think it's also in remediation, when it comes to plants, people know how to work with plants. A lot of people know how to plant something. Um, some folks know how to do things like when we're talking about the, the bacteria, people might've made compost, but when it comes to mushrooms, very few people know how to actually grow them and how to kind of take care of them on a site. And so I always feel like that's why we hear people talk a lot about, you know, the power of mushrooms to heal the land. But when you actually go looking for examples of micro-remediation, you don't find a lot. Or the ones that you do find are kind of failed attempts by a lot of people because we need to take the time to actually connect with the mushrooms and learn how to work with them and, and have them kind of guide us in that way. And the folks who I work with who are really rad mycologists, um, and part of the rad mycology movement are folks who've taken that time and they're incredible at not just using mushrooms for healing the land, but also they're really good at growing them. So when they kind of engage in these cleanup projects, they can actually get the mushrooms going, right? Because if you don't get the mushrooms going, you can't really do the cleanup. Um, when it comes to radical mycology, I love radical mycology. It's a movement about trying to get the love of mycology, of fungi, mushrooms, out to the masses and having it come from the ground up. You know, instead of it being something where um, mycology and the study of fungi is only being talked about in universities or kind of being taken by corporations, um, it's coming from regular folks in community who are often teaching themselves about mushrooms via what they're reading or what they're learning from other folks. And then they spend all this time experimenting and trying to find easier ways to grow mushrooms or trying to figure out how mushrooms can tackle what forms of pollution. And it's neat to see the radical mycology movement grow by the contributions of the grassroots, by people taking it on themselves to kind of experiment, expand the information and freely share it. Because often with this stuff, people do not share the information, right? We don't necessarily share our successes or our mistakes. Maybe people try to patent it or make a profit out of it. And radical mycology is not about that. It's about doing the work, sharing the work, you know, teaching and spreading that work and also spreading the love of fungi, you know, to the masses because, you know, not a lot of people necessarily understand it or know it. There's been radical mycology convergences that have taken place. Um, and they've been these, you know, 
five-day, three-day convergences where it's essentially free, you know, a little donation if you want, but it's nonstop workshops taught by, you know, anybody who wants to apply about everything from using mushrooms in medicine to foraging for mushrooms, for food and medicine, to using them in remediation and applying that with other forms of remediation. Um, Really neat stuff. Also talking about the entheogenic kind of spiritual properties of mushrooms. Um, And there's also going to be a tour with some of those folks going across the states and trying to, again, teach more people about doing this work and getting the skills into people's hands. Because the more people who are growing them and who know how to grow them, the more we have access to using the mushrooms and the mycelium to actually heal the land. Oh, gosh, I experienced the excitement of a radical mycology convergence in Washington State. And it was in such contrast to the droned out indifference typical of our generation. So I'd like to ask, in your experience with grassroots organizing, when you go to teach remediation, do you encounter this indifference? And how do you get people fired up to take on an environmental challenge? I think a lot of it, there are some places where people are just energized to do the work because they have to. Um, what do they say? Necessity is the mother of invention. Like folks are just like, we got to do this. How do we do it? You know, and you don't need to necessarily pump them up about it. You just need to tell them how. Um, then there's other communities where people invite me into the community and they want to know about it because they've just had a spill, you right. know, and they're, and they're really nervous and they're really concerned. And then other places where, again, I feel like people just haven't heard a lot about this. It sounds kind of high tech and, and kind of intellectual and academic. And you just have to find ways to break it down. And one the things I've been doing is just teaching workshops. Um, I just taught a three-month workshop in Vancouver that was, you know, we met once a week and, you know, just went through like all the different forms of grassroots bioremediation. And what I find really interesting is when you work for people a little bit longer, they actually get to integrate the information. They're not overwhelmed by it. They get to apply it and they get to also start building some of those different connection pieces where they learn how to trust their own intuition in the work and become those really good healers. And I always kind of equate the two as, you know, when I look at a lot of my friends who are, you know, herbalists and um, healers of the human body, what are the skills they need to be able to do their work really well? And I try to try to get some of that same stuff going on in people who want to be earth healers and earth workers. But I think a lot of it is, again, trying to have as many opportunities for education as possible. And, and more importantly, getting people doing the work so that people start to physically see it. They actually see things transform. They walk through sites and go, oh, wow, this is what's going on here. And so at a certain point in the game, we can't keep talking about stuff or writing about it. We actually have to make it a physical act that actually speaks to people's experience and physically transforms space. I haven't had a lot of trouble getting people stoked about remediation. Um, I mean, I think the word remediation is pretty awful and I don't know what's a better word, to be honest. (laughs) Um, But I know like with radical mycology, you know, a lot of people are into radical mycology either because they're into the spiritual aspect of the mushrooms or they're into the the medical aspect of it or they're into the remediation aspect. So a lot of folks come and they want to know about remediation and both radical mycology and grassroots bioremediation, you know, they overlap in so many ways. Um, and at the radical mycology convergence, we talk about all those things and we teach all those things, um, which I think is really neat. And I know when I was writing the book and I was meeting all these different people, I found that the folks that I liked the most were the radical mycology folks um, because they were just super lovely and intriguing people. And, and they're some of the folks that I've kept working with. Um, but yeah, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think, again, you know, we got to come into communities. We got to meet people where they're at. We have to find ways to kind of address 
the really hard to talk about things that are causing people anxiety or despair, but then we need to do something with that. And often the thing that we do with it is we say, this is the situation, let's not kind of crater in this. This is the stuff we can do. And it's not perfect, but we've inherited, you know, a toxic legacy that's decades in the making. And the cleanup and the healing will start with us. And hopefully we can leave things a little bit better than we've inherited them. Environmentalism can get extremely analytical with so much data and so many reports and impact studies. And I was wondering if you could speak about the need to listen to the land when deciding how to approach its healing. Right. Each person is different in how they connect to land. I mean, I've always, I'm, I do my work from a spiritual place. Although sometimes I don't talk like that <laughs> just because the communities I'm in, you know, I'm from Alberta. We don't walk in and kind of advertise how woo we are mm-hmm. um, in any situation. But I would say, again, I'm motivated by being a healer. And so some of the work, I also do herbalism and I've been learning a lot about herbalism over the years. And the people who I've seen are some of the best healers for people are folks who have these really deep relationships with the plants that they're working with. And they, hear things from them or they kind of are guided by those plants and they have this kind of intuition going on and this relationship going on. Maybe they dream about those plants um, and it makes them really good at their work. Like I've seen it, I've felt it physically. So for me, I'm like, how do we take that and apply that to the remediation work? Especially given that a lot of conventional remediation, people are coming at it like engineers or business folks. Um, And to me also, land is a very powerful, spiritually charged, beautiful, you know, intricate community and also life force. And so I think we need to honor that. And when we've had places that have been destroyed and dishonored so much, you know, we have to kind of come into those spaces and try to remember the life that was once there and try to communicate with it and try to bring it back. And so I think it's it's kind of a bit of an honoring practice and a respectful piece and also part of that decolonization and also that rewilding that needs to happen for us to kind of live in a better way and do our work in a better way. Um, and some of it is, you know, going to places that are really impacted, destroyed sites and sitting there and kind of just seeing what you feel or what you see or what you hear. Um, that's important. And then going to places that are these beautiful, lush kind of sanctuaries and seeing what you feel and what you think and what you hear and what comes up. Another thing that I tend to do when I teach some of my classes is we do these things called plant and mushroom circles where, Um, It's something that people do with herbal medicine, Uh, but you basically take, you know, tinctures of the plant or the mushroom or tea forms and you know what they are, but nobody else knows what it is. And you kind of send it around and everybody takes a little bit and then you meditate. And people are supposed to kind of pay attention to their thoughts, where things go in their body, what they feel, any imagery, anything that comes up. And then once you're done kind of meditating and sitting silently with that, people report back what they've experienced. And it's so fascinating to have people sometimes say the exact same thing. And to actually, you know, you'll be doing some kind of plant and people will basically tell you all the different things they felt. And if you were to look up what that plant medically does, they they nailed it. And so I think that's part of teaching people that, you actually, your body tells you things, you know, this plant is telling you things, this mushroom is telling you things. Um, And you need to get better at learning how to listen. Because we have not been taught that or we've had to dumb that down because of the world that we live in. And so we want to reawaken that in people and whichever way we can figure out how to do that. You know, that's a really easy one to do. um, And one that people really seem to enjoy. And it also teaches people who their allies are. Because 
some people will work really well with certain plants and mushrooms and other people that's not their guide. And so it's really neat to see who are the mushroom people and who are the plant people, right? Or which plant or what mushroom. And they have different personalities. And when people get to kind of experience that in whatever form, whether it's doing some kind of plant circle or, or mushroom circle or meditating out on the land or engaging in something a little bit more spiritual and trippy, that sits with people and allows them to kind of do their work in a different way. So I think that's a really important practice um, and one that I try to share with my students and give them the opportunity to kind of go deeper with. Um, I often feel, again, you go to a site and often I feel like the land on places that are really damaged, sometimes it's very hard to hear anything because when there's that level of disrespect and destruction that's happened, it can force certain things to leave the land or to just become very, you know, very silent. And so sometimes you don't really hear anything. That's something I've noticed from being up in the tar sands in different places, just the absolute deathly silence of those spaces. But then other places you hear quite a bit. So I think, again, it's just kind of working with that. There's neat things. I don't know if you know a lot about biodynamic, but in biodynamics, that's a form of agriculture that's pretty mystical and pretty beautiful. And they also do a lot of work in terms of healing the land and making these homeopathic preparations. And I remember talking to this one biodynamic farmer who makes this homeopathic preparation of nettle. And he was saying how nettle as a, a plant and an herb, its role in biodynamics is to basically, if there's something that has really traumatized the land, um, what it'll do is it'll make everything go into this kind of isolation and nothing's working together. Everything's kind of hunkered down and afraid. And what he'll do is plug in these nettle preps all over the land, like kind of like poking holes and putting nettle in these holes and creating this grid. And nettle is the grand conductor. And so when you kind of put it throughout the land, supposedly what it does is it kind of takes all the discord, the things that are disconnected and connects them back into a symphony. And he talked about that as like this neat kind of healing thing that they do. So I think there's a lot of different ways that people do this work and that guide them in this work. But it's important to go there a little bit. Gentle warrior With your heart like gold And a rainbow in your eyes Brave companion Do you see a world Shining in the sky With your body Dancing like an arrow Spreading joy Beneath your feet And your hands the wave like tall grass in the wind as you speak with the shyness of a small child and the wisdom of a sage I tell you now there is no reason to be afraid Brother warrior, there are none of us who walk this path alone. Spirit healer is the only life that we have ever known. And I see your smile in the sunlight. I hear your songs in the rain. And I hold you. Inside me, 
such an incredible earth activist in so many ways and I'm sure our audience would love to know what you're doing where they can get a hold of you how they can sign up for your next workshop so what's your website yeah um, I have a website it has some extra information on it I'm always working on it because I want to put more and more kind of free info up there for people but if folks want to find me online they can go there and then they can contact me as well and the Website for that is www.earthrepair.ca. And it has information about workshops, mediation stuff going on, um, also has information about my book if people want to buy it, things like that. I also wanted to say on the whole spiritual side um, and how important it is to do this work, and, and, and again, how having some of those deeper relationships helps you do the work. Um, I think about all the mushroom folks I know who are really good cultivators are folks who again, have really deep relationships with the mushrooms. And a lot of that comes from some interesting spiritual um, and theogenic kind of exploring with mushrooms. But it's just, again, the best cultivators have that relationship. And the best people at remediation um, have that. And I think it's really important to bring it back. So I also think about the fact that, you know, our world needs a lot of support right now in terms of healing uh, on the physical level. And science hasn't necessarily caught up to it in terms of, you know, being able to address some of those challenges. And so when I think about how much we have to learn and how quick we have to kind of push it, some of that information is going to come from testing and studies and labs and things like that. And some of it's going to have to come from other things. So that's something that, again, I'm always like, let's try to listen to the land. Let's try to also place it and the mushrooms and the plants as our teachers, but also very important to read textbooks and to go to workshops and to learn and try to marry that together. And on the whole idea of learning, I want to say that, you know, sometimes things sound intimidating with remediation or with mycology or, you know, any of that stuff. But all that's in the book is stuff that I learned by reading and by talking to people and interviewing people. So it's, 
totally possible to teach yourself. And it's really fun to kind of get together with other people and maybe start like a study group or just try to bring people into your community who have these skills. But it's definitely not as hard as it sounds. It's very complex and intricate in a beautiful way, but it's definitely something that we have the ability to do. So I really encourage people to get out, to experiment, to try, um, and to connect with other people in doing that. Beautiful. Thank you. This is just really wonderful work you're doing. And I'm really happy that we spoke about the rewilding aspect of it, because I know for me, that's kind of the wall I was hitting. I was learning and I was trying to get all this information in. And then I got to a point where I needed to have the other side of that coin to revive myself and to Mm -hmm. realize that without that deep, intimate connection with the land, that I couldn't keep going on with the purely analytic side of it alone. Um, Mm -hmm. It was like really disheartening. Like I felt just really depressed about it. And I know a lot of people are feeling overwhelmed, sad. And I think grieving is definitely part of the process. But then being able to have that connection, have tools like grassroots bioremediation to, to be productive in this and know that we don't just have to sit back and wait for somebody else to do something or nothing, but that we can actually do it ourselves and empower ourselves and our communities. So thank you for coming on. I know you're so busy with all of your wonderful workshops and classes you're teaching. Oh, it's my pleasure. And and just to speak to the the heartbreak and the grieving just before I leave (laughs) and on a happy note, (laughs) what's really neat is again, if people, if you're in this world and it is breaking your heart, you know, with the destruction and whether that's the destruction you're seeing directly on the land um, or it's the constant bad news stories about what's going on with the earth or it's watching people who are impacted by that. um, And those might be your own people. Regardless, I always feel like if your heart is sensitive enough to kind of really feel that, it means that you're a good healer and that you have the power and I think the strength of heart to do this work more than anybody who's coming at it from a financial or like a, a technical ability. You have, you know, the, the fierceness and the courage and, and the sensitivity to do it. And so we got to find the ways to kind of alchemize that despair into some kind of offering in this world and to do something beautiful for the land and for those we love. listening to Layla Darwish, author of Earth Repair on Unlearn and Rewild. I'm the producer, March Young, and the music selections we heard today were Ani DeFranco with Garden of Simple, Tommy Johnson with Cool Drink of Water, Thievery Corporation with Sound the Alarm, and Kate Wolf with Brother Warrior and our theme music, Like a River. (laughs) 